On this episode, we discuss the origin story of Air Force Pararescue Jumpers, or PJs, and dive into the history from World War II to Vietnam, to NASA, and historic operations from the past 30 years. I think this episode is particularly important, because outside of the military, not a lot of people are aware that the Air Force goes beyond just pilots. So here is episode 5 with Aaron Love. Yeah, so uh, we have Aaron Love on the on episode five of the Late Night History Podcast. Yeah, what's up? Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. So first off, can you start by uh, talking about like your background, like where you grew up? Uh, I would I would never do that. Um, so I love talking about myself. So this falls right into into my wheelhouse. So grew up in in Northeast Ohio. I'm a Northeast Ohio guy. I grew up in the same hometown, general area as LeBron James. So LeBron James went to the same private Catholic high school that my mother did, St. Vincent, St. Mary's. It's uh, Akron, Ohio. The town I grew up in is actually called Barberton, Ohio. So it's a small suburb of Akron, but grew up there, uh, went to Ohio State for a year, went to Akron University for a year, and that stuff didn't work out. And then 2001 happened, and uh, I was out the door you know, shortly after that and got into the, into the Air Force and started this wild ride and initially did a different job, but found my way to being a PJ. And the, the rest is, is really all she wrote, you know, more than a handful of deployments later. And just got back from my last one. And here I currently sit PJ in the air force, you know, 20 years later, I think I, I hit my 20 year mark here in January. So it's been uh, about two, de- two decades and I'll be in for a little bit more, but that's, that's as succinct as I could make it. Let's go back a little bit. Uh, did you play sports growing up? I did. Yeah. So I played, uh, uh we played the big three in Ohio. You know, if, if you could just have a ball to play it, that, that worked out pretty well. So didn't play any soccer, but all other ball sports. So played, you know, football in the, in the neighborhood, never played on a team, um, you know, played baseball. And then when I got to high school, uh, I took up swimming. So we took up swimming kind of uh, in the off seasons of, of football or basketball or baseball or whatever the, the brothers were doing. I was from a, a pretty big family. So, um, you know, the four of us played any number of, you know, different sports throughout the year, but I ended up taking up swimming and uh, swam full time really uh, throughout my high school I guess you could call it career. <laughs> I wasn't, uh, I wasn't recruited. I wasn't any good. I was, you know, kind of like a, a mid-level to just barely okay swimmer, but I didn't mind doing like the middle distance events. Right. So the events that really suck, like the 200 meter free, the 200 and the 400 IM, like those, those events that really aren't very fun that anybody wants to do. I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll do those. So, uh, I had value on the team in that sense, but yeah, swam and then took on a uh, water polo uh, and play water polo kind of, uh, after high school too, just as, as club and fun. It's a, it's a fun sport. Um, and I, I enjoyed it for the time that I played it, but I'm not making myself out to be like a lifelong water polo player or anything. And what year did you graduate? Oh man. I graduated high school in 98. So yeah. Old, and, officially old, my friend. And, uh, so you're from Northeast Ohio. Are you a uh, Cleveland Browns fan? Till I die. CLE till I die. I've been a Cleveland fan. This is my, my good friends know this about me. They, uh, they can feel it coming. Right. I, I like to say that there's nothing worse than Aaron love with a good old fashioned. I told you so 
and the Cleveland Browns, when they do finally win the the Super Bowl, it is going to be the biggest Aaron Love, I told you so, that you'd ever see coming because I, I, I've been ride or die with the Cleveland Browns since I've, uh, since I've been a young kid. So it's going to feel good when they win. So you graduated high school in 1998 and where were you on 9-11? So 9-11, I was in my house. I was living with my, my best friend in the world. His name is Chaz. Chaz uh, still lives in Northeast Ohio. We still play fantasy football together to this day. I think we're on like season 15 of playing in the same fantasy football league with the, with the same dude. So I was with my friend Chaz on, on Monday nights, there was a bar and at this bar they had 50 cent draft and dollar shot and they had outdoor this is in northeast ohio right so it's you know it's the end of the summer it's the fall they had outdoor sand volleyball pits and you could go and you could play sand volleyball and it was always just and i was working at a bar at the time it was just an absolute shit show every single monday night because it was 50 cent draft dollar shot you were playing a highly competitive game and it was great it was just a good time so that was monday night and then it was tuesday uh, tuesday morning was september 11th and I was waking up, I was getting ready to go to, go to work. And, um, my best friend Chaz had, uh, he had, he had turned the TV on just after the first tower was hit. So we, we kind of spent that time. Like I, I watched it really from really that first explosion, you know, he and I were kind of on the, on the, the TV pretty much every second, uh, you know, throughout that, throughout that day. And people don't, people don't really know this, but at that time, flight 93, Flight 93 actually circled all the way over to Cleveland. So the two planes had hit. The first plane had hit, uh, and forgive me on the ordering here, and we can clean it up in, in, in the end, but, you know, the first couple of planes that hit, we figured out, like, hey, this is an attack. This isn't, this, this isn't you know, just happening, you know, uh, planes hitting these buildings. This wasn't an accident. This is deliberate. Well, there was a time where Flight 93 was lost, and we knew what the flight plan was, and it was actually over top Cleveland. Uh, as it was making its turn, it was actually turning back towards DC as it, as it crashed in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. It was on its way back towards the Eastern, uh, Eastern seaboard there. So um, there was a time Chaz's son was up in Cleveland. It was pretty intense for us trying to figure out, you know, where is this plane going? Is there a possibility it could go down? Where in the city are you? Cause his son was, you know, in the city, he was a, a toddler at the time, but he was in, you know, the middle of the city of Cleveland. So, um, you know, it was, it was just a, an unsure time. It was a, a weird time, but it like, like everybody else that kind of lived through it, like, I have those, I have those clear, crystal clear memories of being, you know, a 21 year old dude going, going through nine 11. It was, it was pretty intense. And would you say that was like a big factor in wanting to join the military? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of us at that time would say that and I'd be lying if I said it didn't, you know, I had thought about it before I come, I, I came from a military family, you know, my grand, both of my grandparents served. I had uncles that had been lifelong, you know, career army guys. And it wasn't like alien to me to go serve. It's just, I hadn't, I hadn't put that much of that much of a value on it at the time. And then September 11th happened and I was like, well, that's it. You know, I, I remember talking to my dad, my dad was like, you know, every, every generation sort of has to pay this tax. Every generation has to, some of the, some of the young men from that generation have to go pay these taxes so that the world can operate and that the country can operate. And I always remember that conversation with him. Cause I was like, well, here's, here's the chance. Here's, here's my generation. This is pretty clear cut. We're going to go, we're going to war. So, uh, I I'd like to sign up and, and go do this thing. So, and then oddly enough, all three of my little brothers followed, um, in my footsteps. And as soon as they were old enough, they also went in. So I'm the oldest of four in the active duty military, um, three in the army and then myself. And how did you hear about the PJs? Like that's probably one of the least to known, uh, special operations. Uh, yeah, units, was, I'd say. 
It, it is. Yeah. It was, uh, so it was my dad. So my dad, when we were, you know, he was driving me back to my, to my house with, with my friend. And he, I just told him, I said, Hey, I'm, I'm going to go talk to some recruiters tomorrow. I'm going to go talk to the Rangers. I want to go talk to special forces. I don't really want to do uh, regular infantry, infantry stuff. And I, and I think that there is going to be a high need for soft and what we're doing here. And he was just like, just do me a favor, go to the air force, go to the air force first, ask him about pararescue. Um, he didn't know a ton about it, but what he did know about it, he thought that I would do well in, and he was right. Uh, it took about 10 minutes when I was in that recruiter's office. And he told me what, what a PJ was, what PJs do and uh, what they're asked to do. And I was hooked. I was like, I can take the, it was funny too. Cause he, he was kind of like, well, when can you take the pass test? And I said, I don't know. I mean, are you free this afternoon? Like I'm ready to go right now. Like I can go grab my stuff. Like we can go get this thing going. And he's like, no, you don't understand. It's pretty hard to pass. And I was like, no, I got it. I know what I'm looking at the swim time. Swim time is no problem. I've been staying in shape. I'm not training for anything, but you know, I was an athlete my whole life and I like staying in shape. So I haven't been out of the gym. I can, I can make that right now. And he was like, okay, well let's see tomorrow morning. And then tomorrow morning I passed the pass test and put myself in the depth program. And then I just waited to ship out and a couple of months later. That was it. I was gone. And just to, so like, if you join, say you're going to go and like become like a Navy SEAL, you have to do like a run, a swim, push ups, mm -hmm. sit ups, pull ups. Do you have to do something similar for the PJs? It's much the same. Yeah. It's called the phys physical abilities and stamina test. So it's called, it's shortened to the past, right? The past test. Um, but it, it's a run, a swim, calisthenics, some underwaters. It's changed a lot over the years. And we just fielded a new pass test for the four different career fields in Air Force Special Warfare. So it, it looks a little bit different now, some of the numbers and some of the differences between the career fields. But it's generally the same. You know, it's a run, push-ups, pull-ups, sit-ups, uh, some underwaters. So two 20-meter underwaters. I think I had to do two 25-meter underwaters uh, on a certain interval and then a 500-meter swim was the, uh, the entry. And then you had to, those, those standards were pretty quick. Like the mile and a half was in, it was on a seven minute pace. So, you know, you're doing a mile and a half, you know, no slower than uh, 1030. Um, and it was even faster for a little while than that. So yeah, just that. Uh, and that's the, the bare bones entry test. You're supposed to be able to do that on day one of selection. So the idea is you show up ready to go. And at the bare minimum, that's where you start selection for the air force. And can you just give like a brief overview of what, uh, like what selection is like for PJs? Sure. Yeah. So it's called, um, assessment selection It's run by the AFSPEC war. So air force special warfare training wing and it's down at Lackland, um, Lackland air force base or joint base San Antonio. And it's over on the Chapman annex named after, um, tech Sergeant John Chapman combat controller, uh, medal of honor winner. Um, it's, it's essentially works out to be about 10 weeks. So it's split into different phases. Individually, you run through your assessment selection phase that takes about four weeks and it's all the heavy physical intense, uh, heavy, high intensity physical exercise that you've, you've grown to accept, you know, throwing logs around, doing buddy drags, doing those, those long days with no sleep on your feet, minimal food, minimal water. You're either baking in the Texas sun or it's too cold out, um, you know, running from event to event to event and, um, you know, there's penalties for everything. If, if you screw up individually or as a team, you're going to have a physical penalty applied to you. And, you know, sometimes those things can add up. There's a lot of training that we have to get done in a day during these selection courses, and you can't just stop to do push-ups all the time. So that turns into a lot of long nights of getting to the end of the day and going, Hey, well, boys, you screwed up, you know, 40 times today. Let's, let's put a hundred burpees on each one of those little tick marks. See you when you're done. Um, you know, that, that stuff does happen at the end of that four weeks. 
where you're assessed on, um, you know, nine to 12 different personality traits, stuff like grit, teamwork, leadership, ability to deal with stressful situations, tolerance, how your peers, uh, how your peers like you. So there's a peer evaluation aspect of it as well. You're either selected or non-selected at the end of those four weeks. And then after that, you go into your pre-dive or your pre-scuba training where, uh, training is again, ramped further up. Um, and the candidates go and prepare to go to combat dive school, which is the next step after assessment selection. So that pre-scuba course takes about four and a half weeks. So assessment selection, you know, about four weeks, and then you meet that first gate and then you go directly into to pre-scuba, but that's really all one big block. So it really looks to be about the old indoc, the indoctrination course used to be 10 weeks long. Everybody with this new one was worried about the timing. It's, it actually works out to be the, almost the exact same. 10 to about 10 weeks with breaks and some other administration things that need to go on and then getting ready to go on that first TUI. By the time it's all said and done between assessment and selection and pre-dive, you're off to dive school 10 weeks. And, uh, you, before we like, or if you're going to keep, keep continue with the, uh, selection, but you also mentioned uh, medal of honor, uh, recipient, John Chapman, mm-hmm. he was awarded the medal of honor on operation Anaconda. That's correct. Right. That's true. Uh, yeah. Chapman, uh, Chappie and the, uh, battle of Tucker Gar or, or Roberts Ridge as, as it's also so-called. And, and, uh, so we'll get to like that. We'll get to like the combat history of PJs, but, um, so you were at dive school and then what's like the next, like. Is there like, what's the next, um, like course or something that you have to do before you get to your first team? So we knock everything out. So the other, the other services just now sort of aligned to the way that we do it. We front loaded everything. So on the army teams, you would go to your assessment selection. Then you go through the Q course, you'd get your team, you'd go there. And then sometimes you get, if you went to a dive team or if you went to a free fall team, you'd get those advanced courses later on. We did things completely the other way around we just front loaded everything we said okay you're eventually need to get gonna you're eventually going to need to have free fall okay fine we'll just give it to you right up front so usually the way the pipeline goes for pjs you start off at assessment selection then you hit dive school and then after dive school you'll hit seer and you'll hit airborne so army airborne static line school you'll get that done there's a couple other you have to go through a dunker like a, a helicopter dunker simulator um it's a safety training that you have to take anytime that you're a, an air crew member going through the pipeline. So you take the dunker training, you take your survival school, you get all of that stuff done. Um, and then typically what you'll do is you'll PCS the PJs go to Kirtland and they get ready to go to paramedic. If they can hit free fall school up before then cool. If not, they just wait and they'll put it at the end of paramedic paramedic takes about six months. So all said and done, you can get the pipeline done in about 18 months, but that's without any breaks. That's without any failures. That's with you moving just, lockstep through every single time. If you could graduate each course on a Friday and start a new course on a Monday, it would take you about 18 months to get all said and done all the way through. But usually it takes about two years. And then once you get all those other pieces and parts and all the the other stuff, you go to the apprentice course. So it's the pararescue, combat rescue officer, apprentice course. And your skills, you can think of everything. you You learned everything in a silo. You learned how to be a good free fall jumper. You learned how to be a good medic. You learned how to be good at static line jumping. You learn how to be a good diver. You learn how to be good at tactics, but you learned them all kind of individually. The pararescue and combat rescue apprentice course is the first course where they ask you to put everything together. They say, okay, now get together with your team, plan, equip yourself, do the free fall. But after the free fall is over, you need to move tactically to a patient, gain access to the patient, stop the patient from dying, 
coordinate assets in the area, handle any threats, package that patient up, get that patient off of wherever we are in order to be safe and delivered to a higher level of care, all the while maintaining, you know, tactical discipline. So that, that course is, is really tough. You, you see a lot of people that are good at those individual skills. And then sometimes, unfortunately, they can't put it together at the end. But at the end of that course, the pararescue and combat rescue officer apprentice course, you, you go to your first team. So you'll go to one of the either AFSOC or ACC units as a PJ. And can you just like briefly touch on what those, uh, what the differences in those teams? Yeah, for a three-level PJ, there just isn't. It's just different on command. There's a there's a larger, um, you know, sort of conversation in the rescue community about the difference of between rescue and, and ST. It's different commands. They have different mission sets that they get after. But I'll I'll quote Chief Master Sergeant Lee Schaefer. You know, a, a PJ is a PJ is a PJ. We all have those core skill sets. Some PJs go to Alaska and they focus on nothing but you know true Arctic mountain rescues, and they get really really good at mountain rescues. And some guys go to Vegas and they get really good at convoy operations, you know, in and out of Matt V's and stuff. Those PJs, they look different, right? Like they look like they have different skill sets, but they're still PJs. We still have that baseline of assessment selection in our base and core skills. So really it's, it's just a difference in, in mission set and it's a difference in command. But other than that, for the, you know, for the job sake, the job is the job. And, uh, I looked up some, uh, PJ history, like the origins before they, uh, you know, like where their origin came from. And I looked uh-huh. it up on a pararescue association. And in August of 1943, there were 21 people who bailed out of a disabled C-46 over jungle in the China-Burma like border. Mm-hmm. And it was so remote that the way they would, you know, the only way they could get to them was they had to like parachute in. So the parajumpers is that that's how it like came to be. Well, yeah, but, and and this is a great thing that people always forget, but it's a nuance. They, these men were not trained to do this. This wasn't like a group of jumpers that happened to be medically trained that were like, Hey, we can do this. No kidding. This plane went down on the China Burma border in 1943 and a group of mostly enlisted people, they actually had to find a doctor to go with them, but it was their first jump. They'd never done it before. This was not part of a larger airborne unit. This was not somebody that had, you know, this wasn't like jump masters that had been jumping into Normandy and, you know, cause it's 1943, it's in the middle of world war two. Right. So this was all completely brand new. And that's something that is when you, when you look at what pararescue is and the reasons why I love pararescue, this story encapsulates it. A bunch of enlisted dudes got together and they were like, Hey, this sounds real dangerous. We could probably figure it out though. Like how hard is it? You're just going to jump into the, we, and, and Oh, by the way, that mission, they were on the ground with those patients for a month. That's why they had to jump in is because they couldn't get any other way in, but also no other way out. So they were with those patients, saving them on the ground in the Burmese jungle for a month to get them back to friendly control. And that was where pararescue really was born. Yeah, that's wild. And uh, I also want to touch on, um, you know, like the combat side. So like where the PJs in Vietnam, can you uh, touch on... Um, like the jelly green giants. Yeah, absolutely. So we went through a couple of, uh, a couple of iterations, right? So, and, and I will give a shout out. There's a PJ or a tire PJ. His name's John Cassidy. John, I will hook you guys up. John Cassidy has forgotten more about pararescue history, about how pararescue has evolved about the air rescue and recovery service, which is where we started out. Right. So the, the air force started in, in 1947. Um, and there was a time in between 47 and 66, where we went through a bunch of different iterations, right? The air rescue service, air rescue and recovery service. And we had jobs that, you know, 
grew out of that service. And then that's how he kind of figured out this rescue thing. That That's what leads us into Vietnam. But I will give all credit where it's due. Uh, retired Master Sergeant John Cassidy knows he's forgotten more about this stuff. He hits me up all the time too. Like he'll send me an email and be like, hey, what you said wasn't exactly correct. I'll be like, dang it, man. I'm always hoping to pass his, his uh, task, but I, I, I come up lacking. He's just, he's smarter than me. But um, yeah, so we, it brings us up to, to Vietnam, you know, and Vietnam, you know, over 3,000 confirmed saves for pararescue, most decorated career field in the Vietnam War. Uh, some of the some of the craziest things that you wouldn't think that that PJs would be involved in, but it, it kind of lays a base, right? The the active uh, the last active combatant in uh, in Vietnam, this guy named uh, Chief Master Sergeant Wayne Fisk. So he was actually the last when we say the last boots on the ground in Vietnam. That was actually a PJ. So it's a PJ named Wayne Fisk, um, and his name comes up a lot in our history and our lore. But when we were there, we rode on a couple of different helicopters and one of which was the the jolly green right the the 53 the hh 53 uh aircraft so or the h 53 and the other one we flew on it had two rotors and this will come up later too but it had two rotors the h i believe it's h 43 or h 48 i'm sure somebody will correct me on it but it had two rotors and its call sign used to be pedro which is where we got the historic call sign you know it's pretty common pj slash combat rescue call sign is to be called you know pedro um, and we did that in Afghanistan for, for years and decades. Um, but Vietnam is where we, we started really, um, you know, getting our licks in and, and perfecting our rescue techniques in the triple, triple canopy jungle. And they were, uh, referred to as, as jolly greens. Um, and th- this one is, it, it also tells where we, where we got our tattoo, but when you would ride in on these two footprints, the PJs would, would come in, they would land and those, you hear that big, tall, six foot, six foot tall rice and grass and, they would land, you'd go off, you'd get your, you'd get your pilot, you'd get back on, you know, the pilot had been shot down, which happened quite frequently in, in Vietnam, if you were not tracking. Um, but they would, they would get him, they would leave. And then the only thing that would be left would be those two footprints of the Jolly Green Giant. And uh, that's kind of where that, that name came from and where that, that lore started. And you uh, briefly touched on it, the green feet tattoo. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk about the lore and do you have a tattoo on your butt cheek? So I, I do not, we'll open with that one. I do not, and I'll, I'll explain for reasons why afterwards. But um, so that came from Chief Master Sergeant Wayne Fisk. It was in Southeast Asia. There may have been alcohol involved, but the PJs that would ride in on those Jolly Greens, like those were not, I mean, that was like the first iteration. Helicopters were brand new. Like we weren't, we weren't screwing around with helicopters at this time very long. Like some of these things were like, no kidding, the first iteration of what they were flying around, right? We didn't have helicopters before, you know, 1945 or whatever you know there weren't a whole lot of helicopters floating around so um the pjs would be riding on these bad boys and they'd just be vibrating i mean your butt would just be super duper sore so you feel like that thing would like kind of leave a mark on you well there there may have been some alcohol involved in southeast asia and chief chief fisk looked at the guy that he was with and he's like you know what i'm gonna get those green feet tattoo right here on my butt and then there may or may not be a couple stories out there as as they're taking off out of the zone they came in they did what they were supposed to do they were successful they were taken off there may or may not have been a pj at one time or another that might have uh, hung that tattoo out in the breeze so that uh the enemy could see that it was them and they were leaving and once again the pjs got their man but that's where the the green feet tattoo came from it's, it's uh you know combat controllers pararescuemen very common the controllers get a lightning bolt in their green feet and pararescue gets the the green feet tattooed on uh tattooed on them just to, to harken back to that combat rescue, that joint nature. And uh, just to like also cover um, like the combat side. So 
uh, like a lot of people aren't really familiar that the PJs are in all these, like they're involved in like every major operation. Mm -hmm. So can you kind of touch on like how they evolved from Vietnam and like, where were they, where they, um, what other like missions were they involved in? Yeah. So after Vietnam, just like everybody else, we were trying to figure out what to do, you know, um, in Vietnam, we were involved. PJs were the prior, uh, the, the, one of the lead planners and, and some of the people that, uh, went on the Sante raid that was actually like, uh, again, chief master Sergeant Wayne Fisk. That was one of his planning and, and one of his things. We showed up again in Black Hawk down the first Gulf war. We were there, uh, Black Hawk down. So first Gulf war in 91 and then Black Hawk down in 93. If you remember in the movie, played by the, the same actor that plays Phil Dunphy now, which is great. You go back and you watch Black Hawk Down and you watch Tim Wilkinson, who's another who's another hero in the career field, but he, he probably should have got what he he did. Uh, he probably should have got the Medal of Honor um, for for um, Operation Gothic Serpent, which is the Black Hawk Down sent, you know, Black Hawk Down um, event. But, you know, he, he did great work there. But um, we kind of pop up in all of those events. The first people to put hands on Captain Phillips uh, was a pair, was a PJ, was a pararescueman uh, that provided him medical treatment. You know, the, the the first person to put hands on Jessica Lynch, the the huge rescue operation of Jessica Lynch, an American serviceman leans over and says, "Hey, I'm an American. We're here to save you." And she goes, "Hey, I'm an American too." And she was really really worried. And he took his American flag patch off. There's a very famous picture of the guy handing Jessica Lynch uh, an American flag patch, and you can also see the other patch on his helmet very clearly. That was a PJ. Um, you know, you go to the battle of Tacker Gar and you go to Roberts Ridge and, you know, PJs were involved with that Jason Cunningham and Kerry Miller and some of the highest, um, highest risk, highest reward national missions, PJs have been there. And it's just one of those things where that became a part of who we are. You know, we are a Swiss army knife, the career field motto or, or the, the career field motto is that others may live. But one of the things that we really connect with is being a jack of all trades, a jack of all trades, um, is is better than a master of one. You'll never become a master of all, right? Um, but if you're a jack of all trades and you become really, really good, uh, I had a, a very high level special mission unit commander say that he would love to ha always have a PJ on his team. He said, you know, you guys, it, it's awesome to have. He's like, I, I work with CAG. I work with, you know, damn Nick Seals. I work with, you know, all these other tier one operators. The PJs far and away, you guys can sit at a table. You may not have every answer, but you've got answers to like 90% of my problems. He's like, and that's really valuable. And, you know, we just took that role on as being this force that other people between us and combat control, you know, when you get a pararescueman and a combat control support element in a team, that solves a lot of problems. That answers a lot of problems for a tactical commander. So, you know, it's no surprise that we had boots on the ground when, when they rescued uh, or when they, you know, captured, um, Saddam Hussein, we had boots on the ground, um, during the UBL raid, you know, we had boots on the ground for the, some of the highest, you know, killing al-Baghdadi. We had people that were, that were there and in and around and supporting those missions. So, and again, it doesn't get a whole lot of, it doesn't get a whole lot of exposure. And I think that's who we are as a career field, but it's just another one of those things where you don't think, uh, you know, you don't hear the, the fact that PJs are there. Maybe we ought to write more books, man. Maybe, maybe this <laughs> podcast, maybe this will blow the roof off of it. Can you explain what uh, combat controllers do? And then also, can you dive into like, uh, so the unit, the special missions unit that was involved in all these uh, big combat um, operations? The AFSOC GSU is that unit. That's our tier one equivalent unit. You have to be a certified vetted operator in the career field 
then you go and there's another nine month selection and it's on par with the other it's on on par with cag and it's on par with the developmental group for navspec warfare so they're all they're done separately but they have a lot of similarities from what i understand there's a selection that i know nothing about and won't talk about because i've never been so i won't put any of that stuff out there unless you want to get with me and i can get you to the recruiters who i know really well that, that recruit people to come up there so if you're if you'd like to talk to them i'll be happy to pass that information, but that unit, um, is, is involved in, um, an, an insane amount of things and things that I, I don't even know. Like when I hear it, I'm blown away. And those are, those are my friends in a lot of cases. When they tell me stories over beers about stuff that they've done, I just go, Holy cow, man, you guys, you, you guys are getting after it. And you know, it makes me kind of proud to be here. Um, the other question that you asked, what is a combat controller? So in air force special operations, there are essentially four, um, really six, if you count the officer career fields, but there are essentially four ground special operations maneuver elements. It's pararescue, air force combat control. And what they do is they do off field, austere airfield search and seizure, meaning anywhere in the world, they can land a plane by any means necessary. They can get to that area, open the airfield and start bringing stuff in. They also maintain JTAC qualifications and currencies, which means they can call in uh, close air support um, and bring any amount of ordnance to the fight, which is awesome. And that's combat control. And then uh, tactical air control party or TACP, um, they provide um, in a soft and a conventional force joint tactical or joint terminal air control of fires for uh, ground conventional units and then special reconnaissance, which provide reconnaissance capabilities for the air force but those are the four um inside of air force special warfare so tac p sr combat control and pj so we hit the we hit the uh, combat side but I, the coolest thing that i think about like the air force and their special operations units is that they also work like the humanitarian role and i yeah. uh i came across the in uh 1966 i don't know if this would be humanitarian or just like a rescue but Neil Armstrong, when he uh, like went to he went to uh, space in on March 16th, March 16th, 1966, it was like a manned mission of the Gemini 8. And they performed it, the first docking of two spacecraft in orbit. Well, they had they ended up falling down into the water and they needed somebody to come rescue them. So they they had the Air Force PJs uh, parachute out and then go and uh, land and get and uh, get them and secure them so uh so, yeah and it's another crazy thing but pararescue is actually the full we're the dedicated recovery asset for nasa and for space shuttle missions anytime a manned spacecraft leaves here there's a pj team that is on call either from Cocoa beach florida or sometimes spain or sometimes hawaii depending on what the flight path is but anytime that any manned or um, high value asset from nasa makes re-entry there's a team on like on call ready to go jump and get them so every manned spaceflight, we've we've maintained essentially an alert commitment for that. It's part of our uh, core duties is uh, manned and unmanned um, spaceflight coverage. And that's actually a, a really big push for us uh, moving into the future is how to deploy our assets, um, you know, all, all the way out to from space, like how to, how to make that happen. So yeah, PJs, that is, we are the number one recovery asset force of choice for NASA space shuttle manned missions. And can you speak about like, uh, I guess like going, like going, separating from this tangent, go like when you first get to a team, right. Mm -hmm. Can you describe like your experience throughout your career? 
Oh, it's a fire hose. It's a fire hose every single day we have. So there are line items that you need to be current, right? Like little tick marks that you need, you need to jump this many times. You need to do medicine this many times you need to shoot. We have 259 individual line items that we need to, to keep currency on. So the 260 things you have to be good at ropes. You have to be good at, you know, buddy transfusions. You have to be good at shooting. You have to be good at jumping. You have to be good at free fall. You have to be good at air force stuff. Like you have to know how to write an EPR. You have to know how to do all of these other things, right? So it's constant training. It is training, training every single day, packed full all the time, right? Or you're getting ready to go train. And then um, that's your entire focus is kind of that initial upgrade. There's a, there are upgrade levels in the Air Force and I won't bore you with the numbers, um, but you have, to, you have to upgrade to that first level in a, in a given amount of time. And it's a lot even comparatively for other career fields, it's a whole lot to do. So you have to focus on that every day, teaching classes and going and learning things and taking tests and, and doing, you have to be observed, you know, and it's, it seems like it, like the military could take the fun out of any, anything. Right. Um, and this is a great example. Like you have to do all the, you have to go free fall. So you have to go skydive. Right. And most people are like, that's a bucket list item. Like most people are like, I'm going to pay somebody <laughs> to go skydive. And I've been at work and I've seen it happen. And I've seen guys go like this. Oh, this is my fifth jump today. I don't feel like putting this equipment on again. Is there any, I hope this plane breaks. I just want this plane to break. Um, but that's, but that's what it is because you're just trying. And granted it's when you take a step back, when you gain a little perspective and you're like, wait a second. So tomorrow I'm going to the shooting range to shoot high explosives. The day after that, we're jumping all day. Then we're going to the mountain to go do Arctic survival training and do rope rescue. And then we're going to go dive to end the weekend. Like that's a day, that's a week at work. Right. And it sounds fun. And it is. However, especially when you first get there, it's a ton. You're, you're constantly learning. They're constantly pushing you to that next level so that you can be kind of that standalone operator. And then eventually, because it, it, the, the, focus flips a little bit, right? You get there and you want to be your, a real boy. You want to be left on your own and you don't need a supervision and you want to be able to do things like you want to be the jump master. You want to be the guy that's leading the event, right? Well, then after you can just be the guy that's, that's good for that, then they start getting you ready to lead big events, like entire squadrons or entire flights. So there's, there's always that new challenge. You know, I'm learning 20 years in and I'm learning every single day. There's new things that I learned today, uh, you know, about, about my job. So it's, constant learning. And I kind of like skip this part, but do you have a, an experience of like responding to like a human humanitarian crisis? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so nothing big real world, like nothing big, um, like in Haiti. Um, the, my very first rescue was there was a civilian fisherman that was about 400 miles off the coast of Ireland in the North sea. And they thought his appendix burst. He was on a huge super tanker. And I mean, they're, they're out in the middle of nowhere. There's just nowhere to go. So they basically had to spin up a team. I was in England at the time, but they had, I was uh, about six months out of the pipeline, but they had to spin a team up for us to go out to the boat. And then we were going to, there was a jump team and there was a helicopter team. And I was on the helicopter team. The initial idea was that the jump team was going to throw the boats in. They were going to recover those boats. And then that team would just stay on board with this guy and treat him all the way back. If that couldn't happen, the helicopter team was going to pick them up and then we would just refuel all the way back home. And that's what ended up happening. The clouds were really low. There was no way to get a jump to happen in the sea. <clears throat> so the helicopter hoisted me down. We packaged them up, put them in a litter, hoisted them up off, off the moving ship and then moved all the way out, which was um, 
I mean, it was, it was a little bit sporty. Like I won't lie to you as a, as a brand new PJ. Um, but that was, you know, completely outside of combat. That was really a civilian rescue that they just called for help and they needed our specific capability to get there and nobody else could get there for them. And it ended up, uh, it ended up working out. He ended up being fine. Cool. And, uh, do you have any experience, um, with like mountain rescues? I know you mentioned, uh, the Alaska national guard or that team has like a ton of experience, but do you have any personal experience with that? Uh, not on a real world. So a couple of times here and there, like training and stuff, there'll be somebody that, you know, unfortunately like pickles themselves in a rock and they can't, they can't find their way out or somebody takes a fall that will, will help out. Um, but none of the big name events, um, for this one, you know, some of the bigger technical rescues that we're talking about, the Thai cave rescue, like the, when the, that soccer team got the, the, the pararescue team that was there. And, and, uh, we have a podcast on it. If you want to go check out, with, uh, uh, OD Kenny OD. Um, but he, led that entire, uh, that entire dive operation event of, of moving and using those dive or those mountain principles, like making rope systems for bottles and, and getting through there. And another good friend of mine, actually, uh, when he was in Afghanistan, so you're in Afghanistan and you think combat the entire time, he actually responded to a huge avalanche that took out one of the larger passes and stranded, you know, 200 civilians. So he's, he's in Afghanistan and, and now he's like, holy crap, I'm, I'm thinking about how to do avalanche rescue in the middle of this war zone. Um, but you know, honestly wow. with, yeah, I, complex, right. But with our teams, you know, those are the sort of things like, that's where we want to push our guys. We, we want to, we want to put you in the position where you can answer that question. Be like, okay, you got Afghanistan figured out. All right, cool. Now do a, do a humanitarian rescue in the middle of Afghanistan. Do you know, now do a, an avalanche, or if you look at what they're doing with Haiti, you know, right now, the teams, you know, we had AFSOC teams that blew out right away to go get Haiti's airfields open and to get them the medical care that they need. And pararescue men are uniquely suited um, for non-combatant evacuation operations, just like we saw in the Kabul airport. One of the PJ teams on the ground in Kabul, you know, just recently, those guys absolutely crushed it because that's what, that's what we're there to do. It's part of our core skills. And not to put you on the spot, um, but uh, I did like an interview for the 9-11 to 20th anniversary of the 9-11 anniversary. It's an anniversary too many times, but it's okay. <laughs> and uh, his name, so he's a firefighter who sadly uh, passed away on uh, 9-11. Uh, his name was Ray Downey, and his two nicknames were, were God and Master of Disaster, just because he was the leading expert on like collapses and technical rescues for the FDNY. So mm -hmm. I got the opportunity to uh, interview his son, who basically followed in his footsteps. And oh, he's wow. the he's the task force one like battalion chief of fdny so he responded to hurricane ida like he like oh wow took a, took a convoy down there and it was pretty amazing like and so on like another tangent on that but like he he after he responded he's like completely tired and he's doing the interview with me on the phone i'm like i you should probably like go home or something <laughs> you, should, right? you should not be doing i listen i love getting this interview right now but i'm gonna tell you you should stop <laughs> you should go home get some sleep yeah. So like basically why I bring that up is like, uh, do PJs like train with fire departments about technical rescues or do you guys like, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and again, because you know, one good thing about having all these skills is that we know, we know intimately we're, we don't, we're not perfect at them. So we reach out, there's, there's local fire departments here that we work out with. Um, there's, there's, you know, we contract out, you know, the best, we get the best climbers in the world to come out and teach us how to climb. We're like, all right, we're stupid. You need to teach us how to climb. <laughs> like we're going to be doing this in 
we're not going to have climbing shoes on. We're not going to have chalk bags. It's not going to be comfortable out. Like we're going to have to do this with kit. We're going to have to do this with dogs. Like we're going to have to do this with engineers that don't know how to do this. We're going to have to make rope bridges to keep people safe. Like teach us that stuff. And they'll, they'll just crush it for us. But then we do the same thing with, you know, we go to the leading, you know, it sounds like, you know, your, your guide, Mr. Downey, is it Downey, Mr. Downey's son? Yeah. His, his, uh, so the senior was Ray and he, his name is Joe. Okay. So just, just like, you know, Joe Downey, I bet that dude is pretty smart on being able to access any sort of vehicle. Like if I have to tear a vehicle apart, I bet that guy knows what's up. If he, if I have to get into a building and access like a collapsed structure, I bet that dude's pretty smart. So we get those guys in and we'll tell them straight up like, Hey, for this specific thing, we, you need to teach, show us the latest kit that you have. Show us the, like, if we have to jump this in, how can we figure that out? Um, and kudos to them by the way, but, uh, everybody that we bring in, it's, it's funny to watch their wheels turn when we give them that different problem set when we're like, Oh man, that's an awesome tool. How would I jump that in though? Like, how would I jump out of an aircraft with that? And they'd, they'd be like, what? That's way too heavy. Be like, all right, well, let's talk about it. how can we make it lighter? How can we get this onto a pack? You know what I mean? So that's, it's interesting. And you mentioned that you were in England and you're also in Ireland for that rescue. Uh, what other like, um, like allied countries did you like work with? Uh, a ton. So in England, we, uh, man, we toured around everywhere. So Albania, Romania, uh, Norway, Sweden, Finland, Iceland, um, you know, a- Afghanistan, Iraq, Africa, uh, a whole lot of, you know, the African countries alone, I think I was in 10 or 10 or 12, this last deployment, like there was, there was quite a lot, like there was a lot of, of moving around. Um, so, you know, the European countries were, uh, you know, a lot of fun. Croatia was a, a really good time. There's a, a huge joint exercise there called Jackal Stone that we play in every single year. And that's without even, even going kind of Southeast Asia, you know, that you've got the, the other STS that's down in, you know, the Philippines near the Philippines down there at, at Oki. So, um, but I've had a, a good go of it. I've gotten to see a lot of, a lot of cool places. Germany, of course, you know, Germany, France, Spain, all the, you know, all those spots too. And, uh, some, so like a trend that I like to do on the show is, uh, when people go to like different countries, I, I like to ask them about like a strange food experience or just mm-hmm. something interesting that they had, like in episode one with, uh, Alex, who's a seal for a while and he ate reindeer in Norway. I understand mm-hmm. you also did the same. Can you talk a little bit about your experiences? I did. Yeah. There's a native tribe out in Norway that, uh, they have, uh, it's a religious, uh, a religious exemption and it's nationally recognized. Like they are their, their, uh, sect of the tribesmen that live there and they are allowed to ritualistically slaughter reindeer for you, like right there at the fire. Like they will, they will perform ritualistic slaughter of the reindeer. They'll clean it. And then you eat it right there by the fire. It's, it's amazing. And they're dressed up in, in the garb of their tribe. Like it is, it was one of the best, the, the, the Northern lights are out. You're this guy is coming in here. He's dressed all kinds of wild. You've never seen him before. And he's just got this reindeer. He's like, all right, cool. And then he tells you all about the, you know, the tribe and the history and adheres to the laws of the ritual. And it was, it was dope for us. So that was my favorite one. However, I, I did think since we talked about it beforehand and I knew that the reindeer story wasn't going to play, I, I'd have to come up with something else. So I had to rack my brain and think about it. But um, when we were in Iceland, so there is a, what's called the air policing mission. So Iceland doesn't have its own military. However, the Russians constantly incur over the top towards iceland right so nato 
every four months, they kick some fighters up there and those fighters go patrol uh, because Iceland doesn't have its own national military. So it's called the, the NATO air policing mission. So if there's fighters, there's PJs because they go down, we got to go get them. So I spent, you know, two months, two and a half months in Iceland, you know, pulling alert for these fighters that were doing this thing. The Iceland meal, one of their Iceland um, national meals is essentially a fermented shark. So they take a shark, they catch it, they kill it, they drag it out. A shark is waterproof. Yeah. Like, because it's in the water, right? So it's internal organ. Everything is sealed. If you just hang that bad boy up, a shark skin does not breathe because it's waterproof. So basically what happens is the shark meat itself cooks and it basically just ferments and they leave it in these sheds for like six months. And then they serve it almost in little glass jars, like one of those little glass mason jars that has a seal on it that you can like pop open. I got to be honest. So our waiter talked us into it. We had mink whale the same time, right? So we had mink whale. It's a national delicacy. He goes, well, there's another one that people in Iceland do. And it's this fermented shark. And the guy that I was eating with immediately was like, nope, I'm not doing that. And I was like, I'll, I'll do it. How bad can it be? Let me tell you, my friend was awful. Uh, <laughs> it was terrible. It uh, so it basically smelled like ammonia. It looked like soy. Like, you know, when you eat miso soup and they have like the little, um, not soy, tofu cubes. It looked like a little white to tofu cube, except it smelled like you were, you were eating pure ammonia. It looked like you were just, it was the worst. And the waiter is like, yeah, it's not very good, but people eat it here to prove a point. I was just like, all right, well, <laughs> consider, the, <laughs> consider the point proven, my guy. Give me one of those little shark squares. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's the only uh, the only weird food. I always try local food wherever I go. Um, the Ugali out in Kenya was my favorite. It's like a staple of uh, what everybody in the country eats. Ugali is like, it's almost like a grain or like a rice that they make in a, into a patty and they serve it with everything. Like, oh, you got some chicken here, have some ugali. Oh, you got some fish here, have some ugali with it. So, uh, but I dug that because it was versatile. And uh, there's another thing I want to get to is um, the Charlie the PJ. Can you talk about that? I love Charlie the PJ. This is uh, this is this is one of the coolest things, man. So, Charlie the PJ. Let's go back to Southeast Asia. You know, 1964, 1965 area. Uh, there's a very famous PJ. He sees this, essentially, it's like a 16-inch tall uh, head. It's this wooden head, and it's ugly, and it's screaming, and it's snarling, and immediately, in true PJ fashion, he's like, that's got to come with me right now. So the history is not settled on whether he paid for it or if he just absconded with it. I like to think that he stole it because it, uh, it fits into Charlie's, Charlie's narrative here. But it, it basically became a team mascot, and then it took on a life of its own where it became a badge of honor if you had Charlie. So basically... Um, like, like all true mascots. So Charlie graduated the pipeline. He was properly evaluated. He's been to jump master school. He's a static line jump master. He's a dive supervisor. He's a free fall jump master. He's got his own beret. He's got his own rules, um, that yeah. you must, you must adhere to. Yeah. We'll talk about the rules here in a second, but, <laughs> um, it became a badge of honor. And Charlie has been at some of the, you know, the, the AFSOC geographically separated unit. They had Charlie for a while. Um, but the point is to steal him. The point is that you should always be trying to steal Charlie for your own team and for your own area. Um, and that happens all the time. So much so that we had to come up with rules and we came up, I, uh, I've pulled up a couple of these rules here just to give you an idea. Um, but Charlie, the PJ will be absconded by only fully currently and qualified or retired pararescuemen. That's very important. That's rule number one. That's going to pop up a whole bunch of times. 
any effort by non-pararescue personnel to abscond Charlie will be met with the full unified force of the crew field. So what does this mean? This means Charlie is a mascot. You want Charlie. But if anybody that isn't a PJ puts hands on Charlie, it's like the record screeches and everybody stops. Like you're not even allowed to hold Charlie if you're not a PJ. Like that's not a thing. You're not allowed to touch him. Like you can't be in possession of Charlie. Like that's our, that's our mascot. Um, but it just became this thing where, you know, you, uh, you know, these rules, some of the rules and I won't, I won't read all of them, but you know, it's, it's, if you have them, you have to display them. Well, if you can display something, that means you can steal it. Right. So you have guys that'll come into your unit and you'll, they'll see Charlie out and you can see their eyes and you can see him start plotting on how they're going to steal Charlie. Um, I've been in, I won't say involved. I've been privy to full on fist fights at uh, the Las Vegas international airport uh, out in front of baggage claim over Charlie, where one team got wise that my team was leaving. So they like talking to their friends are like, Oh, that's cool. What time are you guys leaving today? And like, Oh yeah, three o'clock. Well, you pull up and there's a whole bunch of like PJs sitting out front. Like, Hey, what are you, uh, you're not flying out. You live here. And then the fist fight happens <laughs> over Charlie. Um, but it's awesome. Charlie actually has a, uh, has a PJ, uh, has, has his own Instagram page. So that's cool. He kind of, he kind of came into the, uh, kind of came into the future on that one. And you can see, you can follow his, uh, his whereabouts on the Instagram page, but yeah, there's a, it, it's awesome. It's actually one of my favorite parts about this career field is that we have this thing that we've, we formalized to the point of like making our own certificates for them and making our own set of rules for them. And it's, it's serious business, man. Like people like, I've been tackled by a chief, him trying to get past me to go get Charlie who we had, cause we had him at the schoolhouse for a while. And, uh, he was trying to get to Charlie. Like we made one of the rules is that Charlie has to show up to places where a lot of PJs are. So it's like graduations, reunions, uh, you know, events where there's going to be, you know, at funerals, if there's going to be a big gathering of PJs, Charlie is expected to attend. Like if your team's going there, you're supposed to send in there, but that opens up to shenanigans, my friend. And if there's any alcohol, any, any bowls of loud mouth soup, watch out. No, I was going to say that's, that's Charlie, the PJ in a nutshell. It just, it, it was a, it was a, a team joke that kind of just took on a life of its own. And now it's like, it's a protected part. Like guys will get upset if they do not have a picture with, I, I just had one of my friends, no kidding, text me. Hey, where's Charlie? And I told him, he's like, this is BS, man. I'm trying to get a picture with Charlie. I want a picture with Charlie. Like I have a picture with Charlie because we had him for, for so long. So I've got my, I've gotten to touch him. I've had him like, he's been on my team more than once. So I feel really lucky as a PJ. Like there's not many things I'm going to hang my hat on. My career sucks. I'm not that good as an operator, but I do have a picture with Charlie and that's important. You got a pretty cool one. So we'll be able to share that <laughs> with the uh, listeners. Um, yeah, I'll send them on. And uh, can you, uh, I don't know if I'll like edit this out of the show or not, but can you like say like how many deployments you went on? Yeah. So I have, uh, I think I have five like true combat deployments and then we did a bunch of contingency deployments. So you would go on a bunch of, um, you know, a bunch of little responses to things that weren't necessarily combat, um, you know, alerts or rescue, like the rescue that, that we would say. So, but if I was saying like a true, Hey, this is a, you know, five to seven month period of time where I was, I was gone. I, I think I just got back off my fifth one. Cool. Yeah. And, and that's totally fine. Yeah, and the last thing I wanted to cover is uh, you have your own podcast. So can you uh, talk about that a little bit? I do. Yeah, so it, it's called the Ones Ready Podcast. So check it out on on anything you download your your podcast on. So we're out there. It's specifically for people that are trying to get into special operations career fields. And really, what it is is it was just a bunch of operators. It was the three or four of us 
through text message, we just realized we were answering the same 20 questions, but we were just doing it over and over and over again. And we were laughing one night. We were like, you know what we ought to do? We ought to just have a podcast. We ought to just have frequently asked questions like, hey, what, what 10 questions did you get this week? And we'll just knock them out. And then when people ask us, we'll just link them to the podcast. And that's no kidding how it started. Like it was literally just us like, hey, let's get people, you know, this information. And here we are, you know, 90 ish episodes later, 85, 90 episodes later, and kind of growing out a little bit and, and talking to everybody that's involved in AFSPEC war and, and doing some, some other things um, on the side. So it's been a good ride, but uh, it's, it's been fun. But if you have any, any idea of, uh, of wanting to join AFSPEC war, if you want to know what AFSPEC war is about, check us out on ones ready. And we got a ton of content out there for you. So it's, it's been good though. I really enjoy it. I highly recommend it. Um, I've listened to a few episodes. Um, also, Are can you, you like promote or like, what do you want to promote? Do you want to promote like, uh, like your Instagram or things you're up to? No, go to, go to, <laughs> no, I'm good, man. Go to the ones ready page, check it out. And then if you have any questions, go, go check that out. But I'm, I'm good on promoting anything else, man. I'm not big on the IG stuff. Like I'm, I'm on social because I have to for, for ones ready. And I go back and forth on my page all the time, but I'm good, man. I'm here to answer questions. Um, I love my job. I love being a PJ. I love being an aspect war, even for all of our problems. Cause it's not all sunshine and daisies. Like there are days that I go to work and I come home and I'm frustrated like everybody else, but it really is a righteous mission. It's completely fulfilling every single day that I do it. And I can't believe that I was lucky enough to do this for an entire career. So if you have any, any question, like if you want to find that job satisfaction, if you want to find something in the military or even not, you know, if you want to talk about fire, police, rescue, you know, finding a way to train to get there, either through mental preparation, physical preparation, finding the right people to help get you where you want to be, hit us up on One's Ready and we'll help you out. We might not know exactly what it, I don't know what it is to be a policeman. I won't pretend, but I know something about training hard. I know something about having mental fortitude and grit in order to accomplish a very, very impossible task. I know how to worry about if you're too old or you're too tall or you think you're not in good enough shape. Like, there's a lot that I can help out uh, with there. And, you know, that's why we, we got together with a team of, of like-minded individuals that can do the same thing. So, you know, if that interests you, come on over and check out One's Ready. But if not, man, I, I don't have anything else to promote. I'm not that cool yet, you know? No, that's perfect. And uh, <laughs> just kind of like, um, just my own like question for you is, uh, you're coming up on 20 years. Do you, do you think you're going to do more or do you think you're going to transfer out? Well, I'm in for sure until 2024. Oh, well, 2025, which puts me in at 24 years. So I had to extend to take this last deployment. Um, I had to extend my contract. It's, just, it's a long story. It's stupid, but essentially I'm in until 2025, no matter what, like that's my active duty service commitment. So I'll be in at 24 years at that point. That means I'll have to, like, I become eligible to look at E9. So the first look that I have for chief is this year. So there's no E10. That means I'd get to the highest rank I could get. Um, I'll have my first look really this year. And then if that's this year, 2020, it'll be 2021, 2022 cycle. I'll really have two or three cycles. If I come out on one of those lists, then I'll have a different choice to make. But for right now, I'm just going to be, I'm good where I am and I'm going to be moving on and, and uh, seeing what, what else I'm going to do when I really grow up here in 2025, you know, but um, it's never been about the rank. I just, I don't care. It, it's not that I don't care. I understand that being an E9, like there's a lot of things that I could do for people. Like I get it, but it's never been a focus of mine. So it's not something I'm trying for as, as long as I'm still doing good things for the career field, as long as I'm not, as long as I'm, I'm not that I'm not the guy that you're like, Oh, I wish Aaron would retire. 
or Aaron's the old guy. Like as soon as I'm the old guy and I'm not helping out anymore, like that's time for me to hang it up. Um, but as long as I'm still waking up motivated every day to go try to keep up with these young guys and, and go, go try to keep up with this career field that's ever moving, like the train's ever moving forward. As long as I can keep up, uh, I'll stay in and I'll keep doing it. But the second that I'm not useful to the career field, I'll just bounce. It'll, it'll be time for me to go. Killing it. Uh, what's, uh, what's E8? So that like, what is that? Like what's your rank? Senior. It's senior master sergeant. People, they'll just call you senior typically. Cool. I try to get everybody to just call me Aaron. <laughs> I try to just call me Aaron. It's a lot easier. Uh, we don't have to involve rank in this, but uh, yeah. So senior and then it's chief. Cool. Yeah. That's really all I have. Uh, is there anything else that we haven't hit that you want to no, hit? Man. No, man. I love it. Uh, if anybody has any questions about this stuff, hit me up over old ones ready or on my own boring Instagram page. I guess you can, you can find me there, but if you want to talk about any of this stuff, I'd love it. It's a great part of the career field and it's a great thing that you get to be a part of when, when you get in one of these communities. So I just want to say thanks, Matt, for always getting our story out there. It's awesome. We have you to, to tell our story. And now if recruiting isn't that good, we can blame you for not getting <laughs> the eyes that we need out there. But I really appreciate you taking the time. I think it is one of those things that's so cool about our culture that not a ton of people understand or know about. And I'm just happy to have the opportunity to come on your spot and, and talk about those things. Cause it is something that I value. And I think it's something that's, that's really, really good. So yeah, I appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me on.